Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Daniel 4, 9 to 35. I said at Belshazzar, chief of, the, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. <clears throat> its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in the bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called out in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it, and let the bird and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passed for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing fruit for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has shown, sorry, has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven, and it's saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. 
Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was uh, walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as, sorry, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Uh, Father, we, we do thank you for your word and we do thank you that uh, we have the privilege of having it in our hands. We can uh, hear from you, speak, we can hear you speak to us through it and Lord, we can um, receive it and, and live by it, Lord. Uh, you give us the the the, the the guidebook to life. You give us the path. You show us the path to, to where, where we can find eternal life uh, in Jesus through these words. And so we pray today, Lord, as we hear from Daniel chapter 4, Lord, that you will um, ignite our hearts for the gospel. That you will uh, remind us of your glory and your greatness and, and how we see that in Jesus. And we do pray now, Lord, uh, that you'll be with us. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, when I was young, I used to read a lot of Greek mythology. Who here re- used to read a lot of Greek mythology? There's a few people. Do you guys know the story of Icarus? Who knows the story of Icarus here then? All right, so about 25% of the room, 30% of the room. Uh, Icarus was a story in uh, Greek mythology. He had a dad called uh, Daedalus, Daedalus, let's call him Daedalus. He was a master craftsman, right? Now Daedalus, he created the ancient labyrinth, if you ever heard of that, the ancient labyrinth where there was a minotaur inside. The king of Crete employed him to do that. Now he was also a prisoner of the king of Crete, right? And so they were imprisoned on this island, uh, Daedalus and his son Icarus. Daedalus was thinking, how do I get out of this prison? We need to come up with a solution uh, to escape the, the clutches of this king. So him and his son Icarus, Daedalus being the creative guy that he is, a master craftsman, he designed wings. He designed wings out of feathers and wax to be used for them to fly and escape with. And remember, this is a myth, myth, right? A fable. Don't try it at home. Here we go, right? There's a prison break plan. It's going to be executed. It's going to be executed perfectly because they got these wings. They find themselves. They're soaring through the skies. They've escaped this island. And Icarus, he's told by his dad, follow the path of flight that he's taking. Follow along. Don't go too high. Don't go too low. It might ruin your wings. That's what Icarus is told. Icarus is told to follow the path of his father. Now, if the guy who designed this contraption tells you not to do something, you should take warning, right? Or it'll go very bad for you. Now, Icarus, in his youth and in his freedom, what does he do? He starts flying higher and higher. He's got this. 
I remember this story so clearly from my childhood because I always thought to myself, wow, that would be really fun. <laughs> flying just sounds like so freeing, so liberating, doesn't it? And Icarus, he's free, he's flying. But he's flying closer and closer to the sun until what happens? The heat from the sun melts the wax on his wings and he starts tumbling down through the sky. He starts tumbling down and he falls into the ocean and then he dies. Tragic story. But it's a story I remember reading as a child because, well, it's so relatable, isn't it? I'm Icarus. I'm the one who flies too close to the sun. I'm the one who gets burnt. Aren't you? Aren't we all sometimes? Some of us, in our, in our pride, we push those boundaries and we think we know better than others, don't we? Uh, it, it does start in our youth. Uh, how many times has your mum told you, if you're going outside, bring a jacket with you? <laughs> and you say, nah, I've got this. And then you go outside and it's cold and you realise, ah, oh, mum was right. I should have listened to her. Or you become young adults and, and you, you, know, you start adulthood and you have your first taste of freedom. What do you do with it? We stay up late every night, playing games maybe. We party hard. We try illicit substances, some of us. We want to party hard, we want to work hard, we want to study more, and we think we can handle it all, and then we find ourselves burning out, depressed, directionless. We have all this, this taste of freedom, so we push the boundaries, but then we get burnt by it. Or you get into full-time work, and you hustle, you make a lot of money, your career's taking off, you're consumed by it, and we tell ourselves, I've got this, I know what I'm doing. But then years pass and you've invested so much of your life into your career and at the expense of special moments with your family and your loved ones or your church and your friends. And in life, we go through this illusion of control, don't we? And our pride keeps telling us, we got this. We know better. So keep flying higher and higher until one day the wax melts and the wings fall off and you find yourself tumbling down, feeling purposeless as our world falls apart. Is that our story? Will that be our story? How will you think of the pride in our life and live in light of God? If we're Christians here today, if you're part of the church, one of God's people, what is the flight path that God wants us to take in life? You see, in today's chapter in Daniel, it actually tells us of the one who did fly too close to the sun, doesn't it? And how he was spectacularly brought down to earth. Let's get into today's chapter. You need your Bibles. We're going to go through a lot of text again today, like what Mike read for us. Um, we're going to see how the story, we're going to understand the story first, and we're going to see how it's relevant to us. That's where we're going today. So far in Daniel, if you've been with us, we've seen three accounts already of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? A king that lived in history, in human history, uh, and he, uh, he's seen God at work through Daniel and his friends. First chapter, we saw God sustain Daniel when he chose not to eat from the king's table, and he gave Daniel wisdom. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that Daniel, uh, through God, interpreted uh, to, to, to uh, help um, the king understand what's going on. In chapter 3, last week, we heard Daniel, Daniel's friends Meshach, uh, Shadrach, and Abednego being thrown into a furnace of fire and being rescued by God through that. So far, King Nebuchadnezzar, we've seen, he's seen God at work, hasn't he? He's, he knows that there's a God that exists that Daniel worships, the existence of this God. Now, many years have passed. And we see the king again anxious. He can't sleep. He's having dreams again, wild dreams that need interpretation. Let's pick it up from our reading at verse 9, where it's the recount of the story from the king's perspective. He says, I said, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, I said, Belshazzar, who is Daniel, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. King Nebuchadnezzar has seen the God of Israel, our God at work, through Daniel, 
doesn't get it still. He thinks that there's lots of gods. He doesn't know that this God is the one true God. He thinks Daniel is a polytheist, just like he is, worships many gods, and he has some divine special power to interpret dreams. That's what he thinks of Daniel at this moment, right? The spirit of the holy gods is in you. So he shares this dream. And what happens? He sees this grand, majestic giant tree standing tall, reaching the sky, so magnificent it can be seen all across the land. Flourishing, lush, with leaves and fruit. The birds are perched in the branches. Animals are fed beneath it. But then a messenger from the heavens come, appears and says this from verse 14. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its root, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream. Daniel's given this to him. You can imagine the king of an empire having this dream of a tree getting cut down. It already sounds like something very bad is going to happen. Daniel hears this dream. He's terrified to share it with the king. He says, verse 19, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Now, that sounds really interesting. Why doesn't, doesn't Daniel want this king to get punished? This king who took him out of exile, took his friends out of Israel to Babylon, but God actually wants Daniel to care for this king. Uh, if you read Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, you can read this in your own time if you want to take notes. But in Jeremiah 29, he actually calls his people in Israel to seek p- the peace and prosperity of the city they're exiled into. It's really interesting. In that chapter, he writes a letter to the exiles. says, love the city you're in. So Daniel now in this position in the royal court, he seems to genuinely care for this king, doesn't he? Daniel, he's probably spent his life in the king's service from a young man to now old age. He's probably become good friends with the king. Maybe that's what's happening. He genuinely cares for this king. They probably play golf together. Who knows, right? My Lord, only if the dream applied to your enemies. Here we are. Daniel's interpreting the dream. and says, King, you are that grand majestic tree. You're the one who's great and strong, and it's true. For the 70 years King Nebuchadnezzar reigned, we know in history He's, that was, it was one of the greatest empires of the ancient world. It stretched across the Middle East. There are so many artifacts uh, that exist in museums today. You can go see them. They came from the Babylonian era. Uh, do you guys ever remember in history? Did you guys ever do history? You did. You all did history, right? Do you remember the seven ancient wonders of the world? Did you ever remember learning about that? Do you remember one of them is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? That was King Nebuchadnezzar. He built that. I think I've got a little picture I found on Google. This is just an artist's interpretation of it, but a grand palace with gardens all going up the walls. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient, he built that. He was a grand, great, majestic king. He wanted the world to know that. Even on every brick on that palace, apparently, every brick had had an inscription of his name. King Nebuchadnezzar built this palace. He has this grand, enormous empire, and, and And he wants the world to know it. The whole world knew it at the time. He is that tree. And so Daniel, he goes on in verse 24. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You'll be driven away from people 
and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox, be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel gives him this dire warning. He's pleading with him, don't continue on in your wickedness. Don't continue on in your sin so that this dream won't come true. But we know what happens, don't we? Literally, the next line says, all this happened to the king. Verse 29, let's pick it up from there. We see the heart of his pride and arrogance. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? You would think, you know, this king should have kept a dream journal or something. You know, like a, a, a place where he could record. Like, funny story, I used to have a dream blog. Uh, I don't know if you know me very well, but back in uni, uh, I kept this blog called blogspot.com, or on blogspot.com. Uh, I won't tell you the name of it because it's embarrassing. But I used to record my dreams because I'm a type of guy who dreams a lot, and I still do. Uh, I just don't record them anymore. Back then, I used to get up every morning, get on my computer. It was a, a big, you know, chunky computer, and I'd go on blogspot.com, and I'd record my dreams. And they would just be so wild, it wouldn't make sense. And it would be this big chunk of the word vomit, right? Just sharing everything that happened from one thing to another. But it was important to me because I would have these moments in life, and I still do, uh, where I fully get these moments of deja vu. I'm like, and I say to Heidi, Heidi, I think I've dreamt this before. This has happened, hasn't it? Hasn't, hasn't. It's, it's really weird. Anyways, this king needs a blog, right? Because he needs to remember, I've dreamt this before. Something bad is going to happen. To remember this dream that he's a grand tree and to be humble before God. Verse 30, he literally says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built by my power for the glory of my majesty? Me, me, me. Look at how great I am, he says. Look at the splendor of, uh, the splendor majesty of my kingdom, what I've done through my power and mine. Now, we don't hear much from Daniel in this chapter, do we? But Daniel, you can imagine, has been in the king's court serving the king throughout his whole life. We've only got about four events, maybe uh, these events that we've read in the first four chapters about Daniel showing this man who God is. You know, and God didn't need to. Daniel didn't need to do that. God didn't need to use Daniel. He could have left the king of Babylon, go on his way, but God called this man to repent. Daniel loved this man. He wanted this man to come to repentance and know God, but he didn't. Instead, he, what God does is he takes the throne from him. God humbles this puny man, doesn't he? Verse 31, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. We don't know how long seven times is or seven seasons is. It could be seven years, it could be seven months. We can read into these biblical numbers and see that seven often does represent completeness, you know, like the seven days of creation when things were made complete. So that seven times could be that idea, this idea of when the time comes, the completeness of the time, as long as it took for Nebuchadnezzar to come to this realization. We don't know. Uh, It's just long enough for him to grow his hair, really mad, it says, like feathers, to grow his nails really long, like that look like claws. 
If, if, I, <laughs> if he had hair like me, I can imagine it would have taken seven years, right? Because it takes a long time. It took me two years to grow this long, just saying. Seven years sounds right, unless you're Phil. Phil's not here, so I can talk about Phil. If you had Phil's hair, well, it takes him seven days to grow a beard that long, so we can't be sure what this seven is. Yet we do know he's driven away to live in the wild. He's driven away into the wild to eat grass like an ox, like a cow. How humiliating is that? What's really interesting, today, psychologists call, they have a term for this mental illness. It's called, uh, you know, it's, it's called boanthropy, a psychological disorder. This is from Wikipedia. A psychological disorder in which a human believes themselves to be a bovine, a cow. You know, you've heard of lycanthropy. If you guys have looked into, you know, werewolves and all that, like if you think you're a wolf, that's lycanthropy. This is boanthropy. If you think you're a bovine, if you think you're a cow. Uh, it's really interesting. You know, Wikipedia actually talks about Nebuchadnezzar one of the first instances of where this mental disorder comes up. God is humbling this king, isn't he? Showing him that when we try to play king over this world and we reject and rebel against the true king's rule, we're no better than the beasts that feed off the land. I mean, it's not wrong according to what the world says today that we're basically advanced apes, aren't we? Without God, that's the conclusion. We're just evolved beasts. What is a soul? There is no soul. We, we're just made up of chemicals and cells. If a human wants to be a cow, let them be a cow. God gives us over to our rebellion. God gives Nebuchadnezzar over to that reality, driving him out into the wilderness to live and be like an animal until the end of the seven, those seven seasons, until Nebuchadnezzar came to the realization, verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And the chapter finishes with these words, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. Did we see what just happened? The dream, yes, that's what happened. But... Look at the arrogance of the king. It was brought low. Throughout this chapter, we keep hearing Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. What do they address God as? The king of heaven, the most high. I've got the verses down here. Verse 17, 24, 26, 32, 34. It's a repetition there of the, of the powerful sovereign God of the universe, the king of heaven, the most high. It's repeated because God wants the king of Babylon to know who is truly the one God and sovereign king of the world. And the story is here for us to read because you've got the king of Babylon, the most powerful political entity in the known world. He controls the life and death of countless human beings. He enjoys great wealth and prestige and power. His empire is so grand and majestic. But what happens? The dream and its consequences are a lesson. It's a reminder that whatever he enjoys is at the pleasure of the true God, the true king, the most high. He wants the reader, Daniel, wants the follower of God, you and I, to know who, as the, chap- as the chapter shows us, is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. It's God. This man, King Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks he's like a god, is transformed into a beast. Why? So he will learn that he's only a human being. And friends, doesn't that happen sometimes? Some- sometimes when we... When we Sometimes we lose our humanity. And only when we lose our humanity, we discover what humility looks like. 
We don't know how much we need God until we lose everything, until we fly so close to the sun and realize, wow, there's still so much that we don't know. So brothers and sisters, today we have to address the sin in all our hearts. We do need to look at our pride. The American uh, pastor and author Tim Keller, he says this about pride. Pride is a form of cosmic plagiarism. We claim to be the author of something that is actually a gift. You know, what he's saying is that we, we sit on our thrones in our lives and we take the credit for life that's been gifted to us by God. We all need to dissect our hearts, can't, don't we? Like, we I, can't, I can't dilute this. Pride stains us all. And I know there'll be hints of pride in the decisions I make. I know there'll be pride when I share my opinion with you. I know in my sin that I will sin day by day in my desires. And I will t- I'll desire to take God off the throne of my life and to sit above him, thinking I know what's best for my life. I know better than God. I'm right. Everyone's wrong. Pride is so insidious, isn't it? It lurks in the crevices of our hearts and it blinds us from the sin within. I mean, it's so easy to get away with thinking we aren't proud. How often do you thank God for what you have? How often do you acknowledge Him for what you've achieved in life? Isn't it so easy to fail to see the God who's behind our lives and instead to put the glory upon ourselves? People will give us a pat on the back. Our salary packages reflect our hard work. The trophies in the cabinet, the degrees on our wall, they have your name on it. Yes, you worked hard. You hustled. You put in the long hours at work and at uni. You are where you are today because of you. Sure, you played a part. But stop and let's think about this. Who gave you those opportunities? Who gave you that intellect? Who gave you the parents who raised you in your comfortable middle-class lifestyle? You could have had the same brain and intellect that you have today, but God could have chosen to raise you in the slums of the Philippines where you don't have the opportunity to go to school because you have to work to help your parents survive and put food on the table. Well, you don't, get to, you don't get to apply yourself. You don't get to apply and go into world-class universities. Well, you don't have access to wealth and connections and opportunities with others. Put life into perspective. Who gave you what you have? Who allowed you to, 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 to have what you have? Who gave you that tenacity, the resilience, the big, beautiful brain that you have? Who gave you the ability to swing a hammer to write code, to balance a spreadsheet, to give a diagnosis, to be social, make friends, to communicate and sing, to love and protect, to survive and thrive and flourish in our world. Tell me, what do you have that you did not receive? Didn't God not give it all to you and to me? The reality is everything we have is a gift and everything we have could be gone in an instant. We go through life with this illusion of control thinking we know what we're doing, we've got this. We've got our retirement plan, our investments, they're all lucrative. You've got a family that respects you from everyone else's point of view. It looks like you're living the good life. We think we know what we're doing, and so we fly high. Nothing can touch us. But live long enough. You and I, we, we know that could all change in an instant. You could have 70 years of power like King Nebuchadnezzar does, and one day have it all taken away from you. What might, what might it be for you? Could it be an illness? Physical injury that leaves you disabled. A financial crisis could hit. A natural disaster. You might be facing death itself tomorrow. You know, just, just yesterday, right? It was the 20-year anniversary for 9-11. 9-11, 2,977 lives were taken. 
Imagine that. You were living the good life and that was all taken away by a group of terrorists on a plane. They probably, the people on that plane didn't expect that to happen to them, did they? Yeah, we can look at our portfolios, our properties, our possessions and enjoy it, but who gave that to you? Who gives you your every breath? Why hasn't the ceiling caved in on us right now? <laughs> because your life, even the ceiling, it's all held by a thread of God's grace. We need to keep thinking about this. What do we have? Everything we have is a gift. We need to dissect our hearts. What has pride produced in our hearts? What will humility instead look like? See, the sign of humility is someone who is grateful for everything they have. Yes, we say grace at meals, don't we? We thank God for, for the food on the table, the provision of it. But thank God for the car that you have to drive or the bus you get to take in the mornings so you don't have to walk. Thank God for your boss, even though you might not want to. But, you know, he takes the responsibility. He or she takes the responsibility of managing the company so you can have a job. Thank God for your friend that was there for you when you needed someone to talk to. Thank God for your MCG this week that encouraged you. Thank God for your parents who put a roof over your head. Thank God for your spouse who has to live with you and deal with your mess. Thank God for the little things and the big things, forgetting, not forgetting the one who is in control. We do have these small groups that meet each week, don't we? The missional communities. Some of, many of you guys are in missional communities in this church. And I'm hoping all of them do this, but I know my group does this. Every week we begin each session doing what? Being thankful. We want to be thankful. Why? What's the purpose of that? Why do we do that? Because I hope everyone here in this church won't forget God's role in our lives. Each and every day. We want to keep thanking God because it cultivates a heart of humility and not of pride. But if we went a step deeper, it prevents us too from being entitled, doesn't it? When we're entitled, we think we deserve it because of what I've done, because of who I am. God, don't you know who I am? Don't you see how many followers I have on social media? All the little letters after my name or my degree? And we expect God to give us the things we think we deserve, a good wife or husband, good kids, a high-paying job, a big house. We tell ourselves we deserve love. We studied multiple degrees to get that career. And when we don't get it, in our entitlement, we start shaking our fist at God, don't we? We start drowning our sorrows in booze and scrolling mindlessly through TikTok. God owes us nothing, though. Pride breeds that ungratefulness. Pride breeds that entitlement. And I wouldn't wish this upon anyone, to, have to be humiliated like King Nebuchadnezzar was, to learn that lesson. But today, I want you to take the warning that chapter 4 gives us. Dissect our hearts, practice gratitude. But secondly, start seeing ourselves for who we are before God. We do need to see that we are weak. It's okay to be weak before God. We should be. It's, it, it's easy to be on our rooftops and to see the things we've accomplished and achieved in our lives, all the, all the things, our, our wealth, the family, the obedient kids who are topping their classes, the comfort and luxury we live in, and we say, wow, I did this. I want to talk about this because we do live in Australia. We are wealthy, one of the most wealthiest countries. Even the students here, you guys are wealthy. You guys have money to buy bubble tea. You're wealthy. And for us in our wealth, it looks like we've got it all together, doesn't it? It's so easy to think that the rich and the privileged and educated in society, that they don't need Jesus. But it's the drug addicts, it's the prostitutes, it's the pimps, they need Jesus. Isn't that how we naturally think? But if we think like that, then we forget we ourselves, how we stand before God, don't we? 
Wealth, prestige, comfortable lifestyle, that doesn't mean anything if we haven't recognized the spiritual poverty of our hearts. Everyone needs Jesus. You can have a, a ton of, of cryptocurrency, and it means nothing when it comes to God's currency. Reality is, in our pursuit for comfort and peace and freedom, we'll make decisions for ourselves that will always have hints of pride and greed and selfishness. We're not perfect. We have to see that whatever stage of life we're in, whether we have lots or whether we have little, your heart and my heart stained by sin. We need to come before God like the tax collector in that story. You know the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee? I've got on the screen for you one. Uh, Jesus is telling this story in Luke 18. And from verse 11, the Pharisee, I think I've got it on the screen. If I don't, oh, here it is. It's a bit small. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says this line in verse 14, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't that exactly what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? He exalted himself and he was humbled. Will you acknowledge God? Will you stand before him and realize that you and I were sinners before him, deserving of nothing? But he, in his grace and his mercy, has extended us so much kindness. See, in our pride, we look at the world around us and we compare ourselves to the poor, to the wicked, to the addicts, to the pimps, to those who we consider scum. And we say, at least I'm not like that. But stop comparing yourself to others. Compare yourself to Jesus instead. And tell me, when you compare yourself to Jesus, the perfect holy God that we worship, how do you stack up? Man, if I thought I was even in the same division as Jesus, man, God would be laughing at me. I'm nowhere near. He's perfect without sin. I'm not even close. Jesus in his perfect holiness, in his greatness and awesomeness and divinity, sovereign, all-powerful, majestic, what does he do? What does Jesus do? What's, what's good enough for him? The son of, our, son of God comes to our world in humility to serve. Great kings and leaders need to take note from the playbook of humility, right? The greatest leader, the, king who, the greatest king who ever lived, Jesus, came to serve. Came to serve his people. Came to die on a cross for them. The man who sacrificed his life, the God-man who sacrificed his life, didn't come with pride. He came with humility. To live, to die, to, to die one of the most humiliating of deaths, to be stripped naked, hands and feet nailed to a cross. Why? Because you and I deserve that love? No, we don't deserve that sort of love. I mean, for my sin, for the times I've been proud, arrogant, for all the times I've rejected God and sat on the throne of my life and thought to myself, wow, is not this a great Babylon I've built Oh, by my might and power for the glory of my majesty? How many times have I thought that? Something like that. For the times in my heart I've thought, thank God I'm not like the prostitute or the pimp or the tax collector. For the times I've thought to myself in my pride and my entitlement, is not, is not this the holiday that I deserve? Man, I deserve this holiday from my hard work and the hard-earned money and the little kingdom I've built for myself. Jesus died for me out of pure grace and his mercy. He died for you and for me because in our arrogance, we dismiss God as king and instead we put ourselves on the throne. Friends, can't you see that? 
The pride of the Pharisee and the pride of King Nebuchadnezzar exists in us all because we're all human. We're all sinners. And we need Jesus. I mean, the king of the universe, Jesus, he washed his disciples' dirty feet. Yet I know the temptation. That a dirty job like that, even say, let's clean the church toilets after church, that's beneath me. Jesus did it out of love for God, out of love for the sinner, for you and I, not because God owes us, not because we are deserving, but simply by his grace. He went to the cross in service to God, in humility, so that God could be glorified, so that we could be saved. Praise Jesus. He models to us what true, deep humility looks like, one of service, one of selfless sacrifice, one where God is king over our lives. And so how we work, how we parent our kids, how we love our spouses, how we study at uni, how we do friendship, how we manage money, how we love this church family even. It's, not all, it's, all, it, it's all not only a gift, but it's in service to him because he's the one true king who sits on the throne. Will we humble ourselves before the king? Yes, you can acknowledge God as the giver of all gifts. You can say grace before meals. That's good. You can have thankful points every week. But to be humble before God is so much more than lip service, isn't it? To say, praise God, I love Jesus, only means so much. But in our story, Daniel, as God's mouthpiece, he tells Nebuchadnezzar to repent, doesn't he? To have a change of heart. To not oppress others, to show kindness, to change. God wants our words to be backed by action. He wants our hearts. He wants change. Not to have a heart of entitlement, but a heart of service and humility. I know many of us in this room can acknowledge this world belongs to God. I know many in this room who will say God is the sovereign God of the universe. He's the creator. He's, the, he's, he's majestic. He rules the world. But let me ask you, does he rule your hearts? In saying all that, I don't doubt that God has already begun that work in so many of you. I've seen people here who are constantly thankful to God for what they have. It's reflected in your speech and actions. People who, who took the job with less pay but less hours so they could serve God and serve their church. People who choose to use their money for the kingdom instead of living a lavish lifestyle of excess that they don't need. I've seen humility in the lives of believers in this church and it humbles me that I have the great privilege to do life with you. But friends, wouldn't you agree that we could all live with a bit more humility? Will you pray that the Spirit will be at work to help identify the pride and entitlement that has been taken root in our hearts? Now, I need to do this as much as anyone else in this room. I need Jesus. I need the Spirit to work, and I need to fight against my flesh. Pray with me that the Spirit will give you and I a constant heart of thankfulness and gratitude. And pray that the Spirit will help you look up. Look up to God and see Him as the King who is worthy of our worship and our service. You see, the thing about Icarus's story is he just really... He was really just a boy who wanted freedom. He was given wings and he could fly. And he flew and he flew and you could imagine that freedom he felt. Wow, it feels good to fly high, doesn't it? To push the boundaries, that's a thrill. It's easy to think we know better than others and to think we know what's best for our lives. Even better than God. But sometimes there's wisdom, isn't there? Living in the boundaries. Even if it makes us uncomfortable. Even if it's inconvenient. Because maybe the one who designed it wants good for us. Sometimes we have to look to the one who designed the wings and put away our pride and realize there's a reason, there's a roadmap given to us. It tells us of who he is. Let's seek humility looking to Jesus who has gone before us. 
and see that he has set the flight course, that flight course already towards a life that flourishes and one that brings true freedom under the rule and reign of a good and great God, a much better king than we'd ever be. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you knowing we're not perfect. Like the tax collector, Lord, we ask for your mercy knowing that we are sinners in need of your grace. We're thankful for Jesus, Lord, that he clothes us with righteousness through the cross, through his death and his resurrection. That through faith we are justified before you. That is the greatest gift we could ask for. Greater than any materialistic, any relationship, anything that we, we seek after and desire in this world, Lord. The greatest gift is that we have Jesus already. So Lord, with that knowledge, empower us. Give us conviction of heart. Help us to be a people who are always thankful and grateful for the things we have in this life, knowing it all comes from your good and providential hand. Father, you are a good and great God. Help us to keep looking up to see that, that you are the king of this universe. And help us, Lord. Help us. Help our hearts to see that you are the king who, who reigns even over our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we'll submit to that truth that your spirit will convict us and move us to put away pride, to seek humility. Help us to keep searching through the scriptures and seeing examples of it in Jesus, the one who is king. And help us to be empowered to live like Jesus, to be a leader in our workplaces, in our homes, in our families, in our friendship groups, but to be a leader like Jesus who serves others, who looks to the goodness of others because we want to see others know the goodness of you. We do pray for this, Lord, in his precious name. Amen.